We are uh, in the book of John. We are in chapter 9 today. And so last week, Trev talked about uh, Jesus healing this man who had been born blind. On, and uh, he talked about this, this incredible thing that happened when Jesus came and, and literally touched this man's face, touched his eyes, and reached into the, the darkest, really the deepest part of this man's shame and what had separated him from his society. And, and he reached in and he healed him. And in the context, of course, of this chapter, uh, if you just read from, from chapter 1 of John to where we are at now, there is this just clarion recurring gong that Jesus is God. And you cannot read John and walk away and say anything other than that Jesus claims to be the God of the Bible. There's no other thing that he could be saying. And so, remember in chapter 5, he had healed a guy on, on the Sabbath, and he was a man who was lame, uh, crippled. Jesus healed him, and it caused all kinds of issues. And we get John chapter 5 and 6 out of that, where he, it's all these deep theological questions where Jesus is telling the Pharisees and the other people, basically where he's from, uh, who he is, that he is sent from the Father. And we have him doing a lot of other things. And then in chapter 8 is this very long discourse he has with the Jewish leaders. And it ends with him saying, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning he is claiming to be the God who spoke to Moses in the bush, that he is claiming to be the God who called Abraham out of, out of his pagan land, into a land that he would tell him about, that he is claiming, he's already claimed to be the God of creation, and he has fully claimed saying, I am the God of the Jews. I am the one true God. And of course, they understand what he's saying, and then they pick up stones to kill him. And that brings us to chapter 9, where Jesus comes along and heals this man who was born blind. And it starts to cause a ruckus. And really in 9, in, in a 1 through 12 is kind of the beginning of the story. And in 35 through 41, the end of the chapter, which we're not going to get to today, that is sort of the end of the story of this particular thing. And then this middle section is what we're going to cover today, 13 through 34, which is a big chunk of text, but we're all, we can do it. And, but it's, it was, you couldn't, it's all one story. You couldn't chop it up. So let's uh, pray, and then we will get into to our text here if I don't fall off the stage. Uh, dear Jesus, I just, I love you. I love that we can read about you and that it is true. I just I love that you are a God who heals blind people and you do it still today. You have brought precious Thai people out of darkness and into your marvelous light and they have said, baptize me publicly so that I can say that I am a follower of Jesus. And that is what is going on. You are constantly at work, Lord. And when it seems that you are not at work, the truth is that you are. You are never idle. And I just pray for this morning. I, I pray for each one of us. You, you brought us here on purpose. It is not an accident that we're sitting here today. We come here to worship you. We come here to, to hear your word. Would you teach us today, Lord Jesus? Teach us what we need to know. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us. Train us. Teach us. Show us how we should live our days, Lord. Would you pray for the person next to you or in front of you, around you, even if you don't know their name, would you just, just pray for them that God would open their heart and their mind to what he wants to teach us through the Bible today?
pray for yourself that the Lord would teach you what he wants you to know today. Pray for me that I would, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're going to look at some of the fallout today, Lord, of of what your actions had and at the truth of who you are. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' risen name and just ask that you would have your way with us today, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. John chapter 9, verse 13 is where we're at. I'm just going to read through this section and then we'll go back through and walk through it together. So it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know that he's our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that everyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is, out, or he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you that already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So fun times with the Pharisees. And uh, they're not the happiest group in the Bible generally. Generally equate Pharisees with jovial. But... Let's jump into this and see what happened, because it's almost like a, uh, well, the reason it seems like something on, on a stage almost, like, is because it's a real thing that happened. And so you have these, these characters, this group of Pharisees, who were the uh, Jewish religious rulers of the day. They were, there was a big council made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and some scribes, but these Pharisees were there, and when Jesus healed this guy, they noticed, because it makes a big ruckus. And so, but they were the spiritual leaders of the day. And so they bring this blind guy to the spiritual leaders so that they can get some answers to try to figure out what happened. And then you've got this guy who was born blind. He's this other actor. And the other group is really this guy's parents. And so we'll kind of see how they interact and and how this group of people uh, plays out this scene that happens. 
So it says in 13, they brought the Pharisees to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. I love grammar, right? So this guy was blind, but he's not blind anymore, right? The man who had been blind. It's way better than verse 9 verse 1 says, he saw a man born uh, blind from birth. That was the guy's identity. But now, the guy whose name we don't ever get, he's just the man who had been blind. I love it. So they can't deny that he can see because they could, you know, I mean, they're like, how many fingers am I holding up? I mean, that only goes for so long before they figure out that the guy can actually see. So that first thing is discovered by the Pharisees. And the next thing it says, uh, verse 14, now on the day when Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes, that was a Sabbath. And that gives us the problem of what happened. So it's not that Jesus even healed the guy that is their problem. What made them mad was that he spit on the ground and he took dirt and he made mud which, according to the Pharisees, was work. Either it was because he had picked up dirt, which was like plowing, or he had made clay like a potter, and that was considered work. So they were mad because he made a quarter-size amount of mud in his hand on the Sabbath. That's why they were mad. So, therefore, the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. Well, the guy says... All right, so this is their first line of questioning. They bring the guy in, right? And so they say, all right, how did he do it? He goes, well, he, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and then I can see. I mean, it's a plain question with a plain answer, right? So some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath or obey the Sabbath. And they mean that he had taken and made that mud to put on the man's eyes. But then others asked, well, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? And so they were divided. So some of the Pharisees, right, they're saying, well, listen, he sinned. He broke the rules. He broke our understanding of what it means to keep the Sabbath. And so he's a sinner. These other guys said, um, the guy was blind and now he can see Jesus did it. How do you explain that? And here, here's one thing we're going to see throughout here is that the truth of Jesus challenges our preconceptions, our comfort and our control. And we're going to look at several of the preconceived ideas that the Pharisees had. And I think the first one of those is that they understand, they think that they know what it means to keep the Sabbath, right? And a preconceived idea is an idea that, you think about conception coming into being, it's preconceived, it comes into being, or it starts too early. It's preconceived. It's before you have all the evidence. You don't have enough evidence, really, to have an idea, but you have one anyway. That's a preconceived idea. Now, they thought that they had all the information because these guys had memorized most of the Old Testament. Like, memorized it. I don't mean just, we can't even get through numbers. And they had memorized the Bible. But they had great knowledge, but very little understanding. And so when it says, this man is not from God, after Jesus has already claimed to be from God and already demonstrated that he's from God, for he does not keep our understanding of what it means to keep the Sabbath. So finally, they turn again to the blind man, verse 17. And they say, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. So they're like, okay, you say that that's how he did it, but what do you have to say about him? And the guy says, he's a prophet which I love because they had just said he's not from God. And a prophet is like someone from God, clearly. And so the guy says, well, he's a prophet. I love it. He's just this plain question, 
what do you have to say about him? It's their fault for asking open-ended questions, I guess. And the man replies, he's a prophet. I love it. He just totally contradicts these religious scholars and leaders and high, important, roby-wearing people in, in tall chairs or whatever. I don't know if they're actually sitting in tall chairs, but I sort of have this image of these guys, very important-looking and dour with pointy hats. And, and you, you just think about religious, important people today, right? Uh, they, they like to wear the stuff. And because you've got to, if you're going to be important, by golly, you should wear important robes. And so you have, I'm probably stepping on toes, sorry, but you have, um, I just have this image. I don't know, maybe they're standing around in a circle wearing, wearing flip-flops. I don't know, but probably not. So you got these guys, and he just says he's a prophet. So in verse 18, so that was his first round of questioning, right? How did he do it? What do you have to say about it? The second one, uh, really 18 through 23, says the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind. So here's kind of a parenthesis in this action here. They bring this guy in to question him. And in verse 18, what they're doing is the, uh, they're, they says they still did not believe that he had been blind. So they're like, okay, this guy can now see, but we don't believe he's born blind. So we're going to bring in some witnesses to prove that he was or was not. Until they sent for the man's parents. And in verse 19, you have these guys' parents come in, and they say, Is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? And how is it that he can now see? Three questions. So we have them brought in as witnesses. So in the Jewish law, in the book of Deuteronomy, it lays this out, that you, had, you couldn't accuse someone with fewer than two or more witnesses. So if one guy comes up and accuses somebody, you have to have witnesses, corroborating witnesses that come up and give testimony to an accusation. So they bring up these parents, and the parents say, well, we know he's our son. So they can't deny that. And we also know that he was born blind. These things we know. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And so his parents, in verse 22, there's this, really this parenthetical statement that John puts in there explaining why they had acted this way. Because it says, his parents said this, because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided this, that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age. So already one preconceived idea that they understood what it meant to obey the Sabbath. Another preconceived idea here is that they did not believe that the guy had been born blind, even though his testimony and everyone else's testimony pointed to that reality. And then another one is that they say, listen to this, anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. So if you remember John chapter 20, verse 31, which if you want to stick your finger in John 9 and flip with me to 2031, we've been here before, and we'll go back here again. Because not every book of the Bible does the author say, by the way, this is why I wrote it. Usually we have to work really hard to figure it out. But in John 20, 31, it says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the gospel, right? That you believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and that by believing that you then have life in his name. If you've never done that, you don't have life in his name. And you need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But look at the language here. They say anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. 
So the very thing that would save the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, are going to punish them for doing that. Isn't that amazing? That's what legalism does, by the way. Legalism always punishes people for trying to do what God wants them to do. So that's why his parents said he is of age. It's a terrifying thing to be put out of the synagogue, right? Uh, and it would, be, it would mean their, their, their culture, their community, their place in society would be removed from them. Terrible thing. So we have this threat by the Jews and this testimony by the parents. Then in verse 24, we have this second line of questioning. So it says, the second time they summoned the man who had been blind. I love that title, the man who had been blind. And they say, give glory to God. You may have a footnote in your Bible. That was really like a, uh, it was an idiom that they used to, to have somebody give a, when the swear before they gave an oath. Kind of like in court, we lay our hand in the Bible and says, I swear, you know, to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's what they're doing there. When they say, give glory to God, it's like they're telling him, swear on God's name that you will tell the truth. And then they say, we know this man is a sinner. So here's a second preconception that they had, is that they have this preconceived idea or assumption that Jesus must be a sinner because he's not following their rules. And so the man replies, I love this guy's just clarity. He goes, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I mean, I love this guy. He's no smart, he's a born blind beggar. Lowest member of society, right? I mean, it's honestly, it's like one of, a, one of our homeless friends in the park going up and talking to, I don't know, professor somewhere. I don't even know. The president? I don't know the president, but highfalutin people, important people in big chairs and pointy hats. This guy is not supposed to know anything. And he says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. It's the incredible clarity of the reality of what Jesus did. He's like, I don't know all that stuff. I just know that 20 minutes ago, I couldn't see, and now I can see you guys in your pointy hats. And that's it. That's all I know. It's a great witness. And then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You notice the question they're asking, what and how? We have a deep need as humans to know what and how, right? And so we, we design a scientific method to answer that question in, in nature. It answers what and how. We design that in, 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 uh, in medicine. We design what is going on, how did this happen. We design it uh, uh, to figure out what happened at a crime scene. It is what humans do to figure out what's going on, what and how. What question do they do not ask, though? They don't ask who. They just want to know what and how. What did he do and how did he open your eyes? Because you were obviously born blind and now you're not. How did that happen? And he answers and he says, um, I, I told you that already. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? <laughs> it's just so great. Do you want to become his disciples too? And I don't think it's super snarky. Maybe it is. But I think he's just asking Maybe, they may, maybe, because uh, this guy is not Jesus' disciple yet. As you read on in the story uh, in 35 and following, uh, he has not yet come to believe. He just knows what Jesus has done. Jesus is going to find him in verse 35, and there's this incredible interaction between Jesus and this man. But right now, Jesus is not in this scene, right? If you view things like on a stage, you've got the Pharisees, and then this guy, and then his parents are kind of over here, and then you've got the crowd around him, and that's all that's there. Jesus isn't on the stage right now. And this guy just says, 
Well, maybe they'll want to become his disciples too. And then it says in verse 28 and 29, they hurled insults at him or they reviled him. It's very strong language. They hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. I mean, look at the response. What is being challenged? Their preconceptions and their comfort and their control are all being challenged by the reality of what Jesus has done. And now they're responding by yelling at a guy who used to be blind. And the man answered, now, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, but yet he opened my eyes. Aren't you guys supposed to know? Y'all are the, you're supposed to know all the stuff. You're supposed to know all the religious stuff. You're supposed to have all the answers. And yet this guy opened my eyes, and you don't even know where he came from. He says in 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He gives this clear testimony. It's amazing the clarity of this man's testimony. He's like, listen, what you're saying makes no sense whatsoever. Makes no sense. You're yelling at me, but look at the evidence. The guy, I was blind. We all know that now. And this guy made me not blind. He healed me. And only someone sent from God could do that. That's why I called him a prophet earlier. He said if he were not from God, he could do nothing, which is absolutely true. And to this they replied, oh my gosh, you're right. Jesus is the Messiah, and they bowed down and worshiped. No. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. Some of your versions may say uh, uh, like entirely or utterly or absolutely, um, but you are steeped in sin at birth. It's like you have water. That's water, hot water, and then you put in a tea bag and it becomes tea. It's no longer just water anymore. This man had literally, like tea, he had been made, and all the essence of his being was sinful, is what they're saying. Steeped in sin at birth. So they're basically saying, listen, you are, you're sinful from birth still. You don't even belong here. How dare you lecture us? I love it. Man, they are mad. And then they threw him out. Woo. So, the Pharisees, at the end of this story, they are divided, and they are so angry. They are divided, and they are angry. So I said that the truth of Jesus challenges our preconceptions, our comfort, and our control. We see some of the preconceptions that the Pharisees had, right? That one, that Jesus had sinned on the Sabbath by doing what he did. That, that they, their preconceived idea was that they understood what God's word meant. And they didn't, because Jesus comes and tells them that they don't. They thought that they understood that this man's condition had not been what it was. But that's not true either. They thought that this uh, man maybe was faking it. That wasn't true. And then they come in and they say, well, we don't even know where he comes from. Even though Jesus has spent the last couple chapters telling them exactly where he's from. They actually know where he's from physically. They know he's Jesus of Nazareth. They know he's from Galilee because they just said in the previous couple chapters that this guy's from Galilee. But they mean, where's he from from? Because they know he's not just a neighborhood kid. So, but the reality is that 
who Jesus is and what he did has utterly challenged this. It has challenged their idea of comfort. These guys were, they were in, they were the religious leaders. They probably had comfortable lives. I'm sure they made a good living. They weren't hungry. They had status. They were comfortable where they were. They knew how everything worked. And comfort almost always goes, is very closely correlated to control. They had control of the situation. They had so much control that they could tell people, get out of here and don't ever come back, and they would leave. They had so much control that they could tell a, a crowd of people to stone someone, and they would do it. These guys had incredible control and incredible power. And Jesus, by what he had done, has threatened that and has challenged that to their very core. And we see how they respond by being divided and by getting angry. The idea that Jesus comes just to hug everybody is just not in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus does come to hug a lot of people. He hugs the, he hugs the, the hookers and, the, and the, he hugs lots of people and the children. He loves people. But he comes as the truth. And he comes with a purpose. And that purpose challenges these three things, our preconceptions, our comfort, and our control. Let me ask you a question. Who in this story is really free? Is it the Pharisees who are doing everything they can to back up their own preconceptions to defend them, everything they can to guard their own comfort, and everything they can to maintain their own control? Or then you got on this side, the man who was born blind. It doesn't even have a name in here. He's just the man who was born blind. He gives this clear testimony of what Jesus did. Does he have all the answers? No. Does he claim to have all the answers? No. He has this deep understanding of the reality of his situation. Who's really free? It's the man who was born blind. He's free in this. He's not, or the parents aren't free. They're still afraid. But this guy, he's free. He's not bound by all this other stuff. So when I look at the reality that the truth of Jesus challenges our preconceptions, our comfort, and our control, that happens on several levels, right? For a non-Christian or an unbeliever, Jesus challenges your preconceptions of him. Um, if you just read, read a book like uh, Mere Christianity, where, where C.S. Lewis was an atheist, and Jesus challenges that. When you look at the evidence of who he was, when you actually come up to him and say, I know we all have preconceptions about Jesus. Every single person does. It's not that we can get over those. It's that we bring all those preconceptions to Jesus and say, Jesus, show me where they're right or wrong. He challenges an unbeliever's comfort because most unbelievers are living like they are and they're like, hey, I'm, I'm not an idiot, right? Yeah, I, I, you tell me I need to turn the lights on or what? You tell me I'm blind? I feel like I'm doing pretty good. But when you actually come to the Word and see who Jesus is and see who He claimed to be, it challenges that. And it challenges an unbeliever's concept of control, that I can actually control my circumstances and that I know what's, that we know everything. That's what, nobody here knows hardly anything in this story. And half the stuff they know, the only guy that seems to know anything is the guy who was the lowest on the totem pole. Jesus challenges our preconceptions of who he is. We come and we say, well, he was just a moral teacher. We well, can't be just a moral teacher. We say, well, he, was, he had to have just been a, he was just a liar. Well, he can't be both of those things. No, he was crazy then. Those are the only options that you're left with with Jesus. 
He's either a, a total nut job who thinks he's God like David Koresh and just burns his house down, or he's a total crazy guy who knows he's, doesn't know he's crazy, or he's an absolute liar who has no care in the world about telling the truth, that he's just trying to deceive all these people, or that he is actually who he says he is. But the truth of that is exceedingly uncomfortable for an unbeliever to confront. And we as believers need to remember that, that it's not like, hey, dummy, why don't you get it? Uh, one, there's a spiritual aspect going on. There's warfare going on for a person's soul. And two, it's kind of a big deal. We have some friends that, um, Jenny, when we were in uh, Raising Support, or, well, before, while I was in school, before we went to Guatemala, they had, uh, we ran a college ministry. And one of those uh, college kids <clears throat> was a Mormon. And uh, he was uh, best friends with another kid that we were discipling through this college ministry. And so these two guys would meet. And uh, they start talking about all these things over about a, a year's period. And this, this guy's name is Chris. He ends up, the, Chris, that used to be Mormon, like the guy who used to be blind. He ends up saying, well, some of the things you're saying is not what I understand the Bible to say. So I'm going to read the Bible so I can prove you wrong, basically. And then, of course, he's reading through Romans and gets saved. Um, now, the, so Chris becomes a believer, leaves the Mormon faith, but his wife is still a Mormon. For two years, her whole world shattered. Because in the Mormon church, her husband's everything, man. And now she's like, what? I've got everything. I've got this great husband. Now we're good. We got married in the Mormon church. We're going to have a bunch of babies. Life's going to be great. And then Jesus comes in and is blowing it all up. And her whole existence was challenged. But over this two-year period, the Lord just brought her to himself. And now both of them are walking in the genuine freedom of Jesus. But it was not without challenge and it was not without struggle. Her whole worldview got challenged. For a believer, the question of our preconceptions is a little more difficult, right? Um, it's hard to admit that I have preconceived ideas about God. We think, well, I've got it all figured out. Well, none of us has it all figured out. Just here to breaking news. Uh, we've all got bad theology in there, plain and simple. We've all got, and bad theology leads to bad behavior. We've all got bad behavior that God wants to deal with. We've all got sin that God is in the process of drawing out and, as that song said, throwing into the depths of his ocean. But our preconceptions get tricky. What, how do we deal with a certain person? Well, I don't want to talk to that guy because of such and such. Well, this guy looks this way, so he must be this way. Well, this lady dresses that way, so she must be this way. This person lives in that part of town. They must be such and such. This person lives in that part of the town. They must be like this. This part is constant. It's this constant barrage of preconceptions that blind us from the truth of who people really are. And the truth of who people really are is there's only two kinds of people. Those who have believed on Jesus and those who have not. And the people who have believed on Jesus are saved and those who have not are not. And our main concern should be with that division and not the other divisions that happen in our world. The truth of Jesus challenges, challenges our comfort. So, uh, <laughs> so Jenny and I, we have four kids. And if you've ever been over to our house, um, it's a, we're, we're crazy. We run, we run pretty hot most days. So, um, but we just like to have people over. And... Um, there are, we're looking at, we are talking yesterday about there's a possibility that we might be able to do respite care for uh, two kids over Christmas. I don't know if we're going to do it or not. 
But the question had come up, because Jenny, of course, she wants all the babies. She's like, just take, give them all to me. I will take all the babies. And I'm like, well, hold, hold on a second. got to feed the babies. And so I'm like, we got to clothe the babies, and we have to have beds for the babies. And so, um, so this idea comes up, and I was, of course, wrestling with it. Why? Because Christmas is this family thing. You have your, you have your kids. And, and that would, to have two little, like, toddlers in our house over Christmas would pull all of this. It would make, it would totally mess up my comfortable Christmas dreams. And we're sitting there, and I'm talking to her yesterday morning, and, and we're both just sitting there, and I start saying that out loud. And it's like, What? Am I, how dumb am I? Jesus says, treat people like you want to be treated. Golden rule, right? How can I say that Jesus wants us to treat people like we want to be treated and not be willing to do it myself? If one of my children didn't have Jenny or I, wouldn't I want them to be brought into someone's home who could love them and take care of them for a couple days? If I was in that situation, wouldn't I want someone to show me kindness and compassion? Well, then why won't I do it? Well, because I've made this giant altar and it's called my comfort. And I sacrifice all the things that Jesus wants me to do on top of it. And the fuel that I burn it with is my own pride and my own arrogance and my unwillingness to give up the things that make me comfortable. But Jesus constantly challenges my comfort. He doesn't let it go. Why? Because he wants greater things for us. He doesn't care if we're comfortable. He wants us to be free. And that's why he wants us to follow him in all the things that he does. And he doesn't let us go because he loves us and he knows what is best. The truth of Jesus challenges our comfort. The truth of Jesus challenges our control. I don't know about you, but I find the older I get, the more control is more fun or less fun or more of a problem or whatever. Uh, As you... We want things to go a certain way, right? Whether it's with our kids, and I, uh, my kids constantly remind me that I'm, I have very little control over things. And so, um, I mean, really, wow. I hear older parents, like who parents whose kids are grown, who've been through teenage years, and Jenny and I are on this side of the teen years going, Lord, um, how? <laughs> and I know that we actually made it through the teen years, and so, but we look, and we just think, well, if we can, maybe I can control this, or maybe I can control that, or maybe I can do this, or I can maintain this, and I can do that, and I can, and I can just keep it all together that everything will be fine. Um, you're like, well, if I can just make everybody think that I can control my environment at work, then everything will be good. If I can control my health until that fails, if I can control my income until that goes away, if I can control my, my, where I live until there's a, a, a slab leak in your house, we don't control anything except our ability to surrender our concept of control to the truth of who Jesus is. That's it. Jesus challenges our concept of control. He challenges it for the Pharisees, and he challenges it for us. So my question is this. When we lay our preconceptions at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, there's things that I believe about you that aren't true, and I don't know what they are, so show me. When we lay our comfort and say, Jesus, I, I want to worship at this altar of comfort, and I know that I don't, shouldn't do that. Please help me not. Jesus, I feel like I need to control everything so that I can be secure and safe in who I am. Show me that by releasing control to you that I can truly be free and help me live life like that actually matters. That when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that I would lay those things aside and go do it. 
When Jesus says, be kind to one another, that when I'm mad at somebody, I actually allow that to challenge me and step out in faith, not knowing even what I'm going to say. That you need to reconcile and forgive a member of your family. That Jesus actually wants you to do it. And he gives us the power to do it. That's what the book of Acts is about, right? Remember in Acts chapter 1 where he says, and power will come upon you when you receive the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Judea and in Jerusalem and in Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus empowers his church to do his will. But when we allow our preconceptions and our comfort and our control, we block what he wants us to do because he will not bully us to it. He wants us to surrender. And in our surrender, he empowers us to do what he wants. So what kind of witness are you? Are you like the guy who's just, man, he doesn't have a care in the world. He's like, yeah, man, Jesus, I don't know. I can see, though, and it's awesome. I love this guy as a witness. He's, he has no preconceptions about anything. He's just saying what Jesus did. And we kind of shy away from that thing. Well, everybody's kind of heard. Everybody's got a story. No, they haven't. They haven't heard yours. And they need to hear what Jesus has done because it's true. And the truth of what Jesus did in your life will challenge their preconceptions and their comfort and their control. What kind of a seeker are you? Someone who doesn't know Jesus seeks something. And Jesus says incredible things like, those who seek will find. Knock and will be open to you. It's an amazing statement that Jesus says. That if there's an unbeliever that you know and they're seeking Jesus... Help them. How? Just go in and say, and you know what? I seek Jesus too. Every believer is supposed to seek Jesus. From the Old Testament, as the deer pants, uh, pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. The prophet of Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus in the Gospels, seek and you will find. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. We're supposed to be seekers but our preconceptions and our comfort and our control keep us from doing that well. Jesus wants us to come to him and to seek him just for who he is. And the truth of who he is will transform who we are. But we have to lay those things aside. I asked this question earlier, who in this story is truly free? Because the reality is that um, Jesus claims crazy things. He claims that he makes all things new. He says that we are new creatures. And I found myself uh, this past week, actually, living sort of in the lie of, well, I, uh, I'm supposed to expect that my normal is sinful behavior. I'm supposed to lose my temper because I'm a sinner, right? I'm supposed to be forgetful. I'm supposed to, well, maybe forgetful doesn't count, but I'm supposed to lose my temper. I'm supposed to struggle. I'm supposed to, and yes, we struggle. But the Bible's really clear that Jesus comes to give us a new normal. Do you understand that? He calls us new creatures. He tells us to walk in the light. He tells us to walk by the Spirit and not carry out the desires of our sinful nature. He tells us to do this impossible thing. Do you think maybe he actually is going to give us the power to do it? You think maybe Jesus says, I want you to be like me, and then he'll actually do it? Or do we just sit back here and say, no, no, because my preconception is that I am stuck like I am 
and I'm going to struggle with sin all my days, and all of us are, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is not in this process of making us like him. It's called sanctification. It's what he's doing. But we have to sacrifice my concept of comfort. Reagan did not go to Thailand to maintain her comfort. It's really hot there. Really. She sacrificed her comfort. You cannot follow Jesus and hold on to your comfort and your control. He won't do it. He's the God of the universe, and he won't allow it. The only way we can come to him is to sacrifice those things on the throne of his grace every moment of every day and live like we're actually new creatures and to expect a new normal to walk in faithfulness. It's actually a possible reality. And I say that to you because I don't think that the church as a whole, big church C, actually lives like they're new creatures most of the time. I don't. And I need help from everybody around me to do it. And it's a daily, daily struggle. But I'm coming to tell you that you can walk in newness of life. That when Jesus says, now go and sin no more, that he actually wants us to walk with him as he cleanses us of everything he wants us to cleanse us from. It's not super comfortable, by the way, preaching all that. I don't like that Jesus challenges our preconceived ideas. I don't like that he challenges my comfort and my control. It's, by definition, uncomfortable. And it makes me feel out of control. And it makes me feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And that's a wonderful place to be. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you that you're good because you're all-powerful and you're eternal. And if you were bad, we would be in a terrible place. But you are good and you always want what is best for us. Lord, you've challenged me this week with all of these things, with the reality of who you are. I know that you've challenged many of us this morning as you challenge our preconceptions of who you are our comfort, and our control. I pray that you would give us the power to surrender those things to you. I don't know that there's a harder thing that it is that there is to do as a human being than to surrender our control to you. Because in that is where all of our security is falsely laid. I pray that we would have the courage through the power of the Holy Spirit to lay our control and our comfort and our preconceived ideas at your feet and walk in the freedom of who you truly are. Would you free us to do that today? There is something in your heart or in your mind that you're thinking out that the Lord is laying on your heart to do that. Would you just take a moment and just lay it on the Lord right now? Lord, thank you that we can trust you with all of our deep, dark places. Please help us walk in the freedom that you give us and in the newness of life that you've given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.